Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. The Terminator, the movie, I believe it came out in 1984. And I mentioned that happens to be one of my favorite movies. Love Arnold Schwarzenegger. Love Linda Hamilton. But the final scene in the movie takes place when Sarah Connor as I mentioned, portrayed by Linda Hamilton, is driving. I think she's trying to cross the border. And she pulls over to a gas station. And this young worker comes up to me, points out, and says, there's a storm coming. Well, I got to tell you folks out there, there's a storm coming, people. I'm telling you. Now, I know you say, oh, gee, Swizz, you're always bearish, blah, 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 doomsday. No, I'm not. I'm reading the tea leaves. I'm not sure what they are, but I'm reading them. Oh, by the way, you are listening to the On the Tape podcast, Guy Adami, Dan Nathan and Danny Moses. And listen, peeps, we have an ask of you. If you like what you hear on the tape, leave a review. Because if it's a good review, if your review doesn't suck, we might actually read it live on our On the Tape podcast. Dan Nathan, how are you? I'm doing well. Guy Adami, that was one heck of a segue. The storm coming thing is pretty interesting. And we're going to get into this a little bit with Danny because later we go off the tape. With Danny Moses, our co-host, we actually turned the mics around and we interviewed Danny. That is something you guys are not going to want to miss. But I think what you're speaking about as it relates to the stock market, and I know going back to 1984, you were all into shock jocks. You sound a little bit like a shock jock here. But you and I were talking earlier, and you were saying that you think today is a really important day in the stock market. That day is April 14th. Okay, so it is a Thursday. The markets are closed tomorrow on tax day for Good Friday and Pesach, as our people call it. Right, Danny? But here's the deal. What are we seeing into the close right now? We are seeing an acceleration of some of those mega cap tech stocks to the downside. We've also been tracking all week long a lot of the high valuation names that have gotten absolutely decimated over the last year. They look like they're making a beeline again for their lows that they made last month. For a lot of people who are calling the end of the bear market, I think what you're saying, and I will confirm, and we're going to hear what Danny has to say, good fucking luck with that. Oh, wow. Listen, that was Dan Nathan. That wasn't G-Swiz. So if you leave a review on the cursing, it was not I. You know, guys, you started out, people rip on us all the time for being so negative, and you came in with the Terminator. So I guess we already have the theme for this week. But seriously, I work during the day. I look at stocks. I read stuff. And I go on the Wall Street Journal online, and there's a headline today. This morning, it was stocks rise amid wave of bank reports. And then literally, 20 minutes later, I go back in to see what's news. And I watched it change. I guess it was when it updated. It says stocks waver amid wave of bank reports. And that pretty much sums up what's going on, the aimlessness of this market. And we're prisoner to the 10-year yield. That's pretty much what it is. So the 10-year yields down a little bit, the 210 widened out a little bit. People feeling a little bit okay. Test the water. What happens today? 10-year yields shoot back up again. I don't even know where we are in the 210 right now, but there's so many moving parts right here. But the one overriding theme is, to me, you want to take away from what the banks told us, it is consumer credit has peaked. And there were reserves now being taken. Now, the reason Wells Fargo is down today, just read through the number, you're like, wow, that was a decent quarter. It wasn't bad. They released reserves. 
And they're the most consumer heavy bank or one of the most consumer heavy banks folks on the US. So people aren't going to give them credit for that. What did Goldman and Morgan Stanley do? Prop traded their way, in my opinion, to profitability. Look where they made money on their fixed income desk, on the currency desk. They are smart and they're taking advantage of all this volatility that's out there. So each of those quarters, JP Morgan, everybody had a little bit different. And then Citi, the one people feared the most because people thought the Russia exposure could be five billion. Turns out, oh, we're okay right now. We only took a billion and we're maximum three. That's your relief rally on the bank. So those aren't to me positive things necessarily, not sustainable things. So Danny, that's kind of reminiscent of the 07 early 08 period in the markets, the way that banks just eked out what they had to disclose at the time. And I think, aren't we all fairly well conditioned not to believe that they're going to overcompensate? We know that at the start of the pandemic, banks had mulligans for all intents and purposes to take some heavy reserves. But right now, as they're going to disclose losses from basically what's going on with the situation in Eastern Europe, they're going to piecemeal it out. Yeah, and we're going to see a situation that's already been headlines in the last few weeks about the amount of pay, $35 million for a lot of the top CEOs, down to $25 million here. Think about them making that type of money. Again, bailouts happened again. Got the benefit of the Fed and the Treasury and everybody propping up the economy during COVID. And here they are. Again, we're going to go through a series of losses, I believe, over the next several quarters. I think we're just seeing the beginning. So what we did see was cyclicality, which we talked about months ago, which is why I think the banks were trading down ahead of these. We know what the IPO calendar is. It's bad. We know what the M&A calendar was. It's not good. We can see these things are happening. Those are predictable. What's not predictable is how much do the certain banks take advantage of volatility? And are the banks being appropriately conservative for consumer credit? Mortgage originations at Wells Fargo, what they're talking about, it's down substantially. Those have been drivers for these companies. A lot of interest rate sensitive products that they have. So Guy, here's the deal. The setup into earnings was pretty bad. JP Morgan in particular was down 25% from its all-time highs just from a few months ago. So the idea that the banks have continued to go lower, what does that say to you? Usually you get a bit of a relief rally. Danny just mentioned Citigroup, which is green today. It's the only one that's green. That's where the sentiment was the worst. What does it say to you that this group where sentiment was so bad, the stocks acted this badly on the way out of earnings? I would submit prior to this week, Banks into earnings, given the sell-off that we saw, actually looked good. I thought the banks set up well in earnings. JP Morgan, to your point, was down some 25% from its all-time high of 172.96. And I thought that was enough that you would get the relief rally post-earnings. But what did I see in terms of earnings? Well, again, we talk about this all the time on Fast Money. We talk about it here on the tape. I look at a number of different metrics. The ones that really stick out to me are net interest margin. And in terms of JP Morgan, the number is actually pretty good. But when they came out and said tangible book was 69 and a half and the street was looking for 72 and a half, it does not seem like a big difference. It actually is a huge difference. And when the market starts to decide what multiple they're putting on the back of that, well, a two multiple on that is obviously a $140 stock. But in this environment, you're more likely to get a 1.617, and that puts us right back down to levels, this 105 to 110 level, which fills in a gap in the chart that we haven't seen in quite some time. Jamie Dimon laid it out perfectly, not just in his letter previous week, but on the quarterly call about these storm clouds. He's not sure how close they're going to get, but he sees storm clouds. JP Morgan has a piece of everything that all these banks have. They have a huge presence in Wall Street corporate finance. They have a huge presence with the consumer. They're everywhere. And they're telling you what I believe is happening is we talked about this three months ago, four months ago, consumer credit reserve releases have been a huge tailwind for these banks for a while, ever since COVID began. And we never saw the losses that we thought we would. 
that is now gone. So that's gone. What else happens is that commercial credit potentially is in trouble in certain areas when rates move higher. Yes, it's good for the banks when net interest margin expands, what you can lend on, you can make a higher spread on, but it's not good for the companies that can't afford to pay that. When I say companies, corporations that they're lending to. So that's a double-edged sword there. So I think these stocks are dead money to potentially down here for a while. And until we see a clear direction from the Fed, when they take a deep breath after they go 50 bips in May and maybe in June again, I think these stocks are done going up on the Fed raising rates on the belief that that improves their net interest margin because it's much deeper than that because we're hitting levels now where mortgage originations are slowing, where loan growth may slow. And that's it. We'll have to see what happens. But JP Morgan is the one I'd watch. and Jamie Dimon is the one I'd listen to. Now, the flip side of all this is seemingly travel-related stocks. We heard from Delta earlier this week, which was an extraordinary quarter. As a matter of fact, if you listen to the CEO, we're talking about numbers that we haven't seen ever, let alone pre-COVID. Really significant numbers in an industry that's obviously been challenged. And those stocks are starting to get off the mat as well. And one has to wonder, despite everything we talk about all the time, Again, we started with storm clouds and all those things. I still would submit in the second half of this year, you're going to see an explosion, word I'm choosing to use, to the upside in a number of these names as people that have been yearning to travel or getting out there doing it. We're seeing it right now. I was at an airport a couple of weeks ago going to Chicago. I was at a Monday at Newark Airport, 5.30 in the morning, packed. And that's not anecdotal. I'm hearing that from all different people. So the flip side of the bank seemingly under pressure or some of these travel-related names. Now, at a certain point, in my opinion, everything that we're talking about in terms of inflationary pressures, strapped consumer, that will come home to roost. But I happen to think that's an early 2023 story. Yeah, I think so. I think that one of the things that airlines are doing, and obviously in the face of higher energy costs and restrictions as it relates to where they can travel right now, they're probably managing the companies fairly tight right now. So I think that the sentiment has been really bad there. Again, this is going to be a theme that we keep talking about. This is upper left, bottom right sort of stuff over the last year. I think, Guy, you mentioned this on many occasions that at the time, a year ago, when the vaccine rollout was going very smoothly, those stocks were ripping. And now they're a great deal lower, but they really have spent the last couple of months trying to put a bottom in. So I think for domestically focused airlines and things that are levered to a reopening trade here, I think they'll continue to do well. What's green on my screen right now on a day where the S&P is down 1% and the NASDAQ is down nearly 2%, I see Expedia up. Isn't that the E in your hope trade guy? I think a lot of investors are trying to find the things that they think, no matter what, might end up working because there's multiple years of pent-up demand there. Delta's basically flat for the last seven years. Airlines are great trading vehicles, but I hate them all. I hate them all because when times get tough, they get bailed out by the government. When times are great, they charge the consumer a tremendous amount. I see this as a catch-22 for the airlines. We've decided, or at least we think, if oil prices come down, it probably means the economy is slowing. And if the economy is slowing, it's probably not great for travel. It's good on the margin. But what does that mean to the long-term demand or near-term demand, I should say, for these airlines? So right now, I think why the stocks are up, because you had Delta do better than expected, very strong guidance. They said that March itself was very strong, so that bodes well into the second quarter, obviously. And if people feel like if they can do well with oils like this, if it's inelastic demand right now, maybe it's okay. I don't buy it. And the stock was Delta was $55, $56 or something pre-COVID. We're sitting here in the mid 40s or low 40s. Maybe we get towards those numbers. I don't know. But I've always seen the airlines as trading stocks more than anything else because they'll go through these vicious cycles. And again, maybe the U.S. government should think about liquidating some of their positions because they've done pretty well since they bailed them out a couple of years ago. 
One name we're hearing from next week, Dan Nathan, and you've mentioned this and you've been spot on. American Express has defied logic for a myriad of different reasons. A company, obviously, that takes credit risk, where, in my opinion, credit should be a concern. But this stock, and I'm going to choose to use this word, it's been parabolic, traded up to $199 recently, has pulled back to 182 but still has been autopilot lower left to upper right. I mentioned that because we hear from American Express next week. I think you can get a really great tell in terms of not only the health of the consumer, but some of the credit concerns that they may or may not have next week. Does AXP stick out to you, Dan? Totally. And I think for the reasons you just mentioned, we're just talking about pent-up demand as it relates to travel. They have a lot of exposure there. They have a lot of exposure to corporate cards. You were talking about walking around Newark, guy. Walk around New York City right now. It is open for business. Tourists are back. And a lot of tourists who come to New York, they might be American Express holders, what you might call mass affluent. And right now, if you're starting to see some of the weakness on some of the lower end consumer lending, you might not see it here just yet. And then you tack that on to businesses reopening. People are traveling again. Again, I think that should be pretty good for them. All that being said, any hiccups there, guy? The stock was $200 in February. It was making all-time highs. It traded as low as, I want to say, 156 or so, maybe last month. So we're in no man's land. I think our friend Carter Braxton Worth might call it a pair of twos. I think this earnings season is going to be really enlightening because I think some of the things that these consumer-facing companies say are not likely to turn around anytime soon if it shows some sort of deterioration, to Danny's point. But it also shows why these consumer-oriented money center banks, they can't catch a rally, man. And I think that price action is telling you something. Danny, we had a great conversation with Vinny and Porter last week. I love when those guys are on the show. And it was great meeting Vinny in person or... I-L-R-I-R-L. I-R-L, you got it, buddy. Yeah, I don't know. Three letters linked together. But one of the things we talked about, and we had a conversation, now it's more and more out there in the mainstream, a lot of people talking about this week, peak inflation. And I think when people put that out there, I don't think we do it, but I think the implication is peak inflation, which is all going to come crashing back down to earth in the foreseeable future. I've said it, and I'm curious to your thoughts, Danny. I don't think that means that at all. I think we're going to have both persistent, which begins with P.E., and pesky inflation also begins with P.E. Over the next, not only few months, I think it could last for the next year or so. Am I looking at it wrong, Danny? Well, we're just getting now what happened in Ukraine and impact of that extra supply chain issues or whether it's agriculture, energy, whatever it might be, cherry on top, as we called it a couple of weeks ago. We're seeing that data now come in because it really started in earnest right in March. And so we're seeing the March data come in. I think the argument is that some of this stuff will maybe not get worse. I don't know if that's true or not, but maybe that stays flat. And I think you're starting to see a little bit of demand destruction in certain areas already from costs that have moved higher. So that's self-fulfilling that will bring inflation down on top of the Fed potentially raising rates or when they do raise rates further here. So I don't think this is necessarily peak. Maybe it doesn't go up a lot from here. But to your point, Guy, if it's pesky, that's going to do the damage. So we'll see how these things come in. But I do think you're starting to see an impact already on the consumer and what their spending patterns are, which will self-fulfill that inflation should come down slightly. This is when I think we begin to see the setup for stagflation. Inflation still pesky, stays high. It affects the consumer, impacts the consumer. And what happens to the stock market if what's causing inflation to come off is consumer demand diminishing? That's bad for the stock market. I agree with you 100%. And I say all the time, the consumer sentiment is just an overlay of the S&P 500. I think when consumers 
feel good about things. They feel good about things through the lens of the stock market. Not suggesting everybody owns stocks. That's not my point. But when people see the stock market going up effectively every day, they think to themselves, the economy must be strong. If the economy is strong, that means I should be able to spend money on my Starbucks or go on that vacation or buy that new car. When the stock market starts getting a little pear-shaped, that's when consumer spending stops on a dime. And if you want proof positive of that, go back to, again, the fall of 2018 when Dan Nathan, the stock market went down how much? 19.9%. In a straight line from basically Halloween until Christmas Eve, consumer spending absolutely halted. Yeah, you know what's funny? So again, I'm going back to a red day in the market here as we're going into this long weekend, and I'm looking at a stock that is absolutely raging, and it is Nike. So JP Morgan's analyst, who already rates the stock a strong buy, has a $164 price target. The stock is ripping. It's up 5%. Put a note out this morning after speaking to the company that maybe the impact of the Chinese lockdowns is not going to be that negative for them. We know that obviously China is a huge area of potential growth for Nike. I just find it interesting in a market like we're talking about, we're talking about this consumer and the stock is down 20% on the year. It's down from $179. Again, it's trading 134 right now where it traded an all-time high back in November. And I just don't get it. Are people that short or are they that desperate to look for a story that's beaten up? Because I don't know about you guys, it feels just a little bit early to start picking at some of these things. I agree with you. I think Nike reports at the end of June or right around the end of June. So you obviously have a lot of time, number one. Number two, even if you give them $5 of next year's earnings, which by the way, that would be high on the street, you're still talking about a stock which has sold off to your point, Dan, that's trading close to 28 times those numbers. That's expensive in any universe. Now, maybe Nike deserves that premium valuation. They always have gotten it in the past. But again, if the consumer is going to be strapped in the back half, And if things in China continue to go, again, pear-shaped, you have to wonder if that valuation can hold up. I don't think it can. So I like the fact that they're playing a little stock market here. The stock has sold off, so I dig it. And to your point, it is rallying on a lousy tape. But I think it's going to be relatively short-lived, just my opinion. I have one for Danny here. Danny, you and I were talking earlier in the week, and we are talking about some quality names, some high-quality names that you throw in that bucket of absolutely bludgeon over the last year. One of them was PayPal. You brought it up, and you just spent a little time talking about the banks. There's nobody who knows bank stocks as well as you do, but you kind of piqued my interest a little bit. I was looking at this stock that traded as high as 300 last summer, and it's trading about 102 right now. And I was looking at this thing, and I was thinking about it. Worst-case scenario for this stock, it drops... 50% from around $100. That would be basically where it was trading back in 2018 before it went on that parabolic run because all of that demand and all the pull forward for electronic payments and all that sort of stuff during the pandemic. But here's the thing. I looked at the options market. Danny, you like probabilities, right? So I said to myself, I want to look out a year. I looked at June 2023 expiration, and I can basically look at the delta of options and it give you a sense of what the probability that the stock will be at that strike. So right now, there's about a 30% chance in June of 2023 that PayPal will be at $90. That seems like a high probability, if you will, more than a year out, $90, down about 12% or so. 20% chance that it's 80, a 15% chance that it's 70, a 10% chance that it's 60, and only a 6% chance in June of 2023 it's $50. And then I looked at the other way. Consensus estimates after a meaningful slowdown in the current year 2022 are calling for 24% EPS growth, 
next year and about 20% sales growth. And right now, it trades about 18 times next year. Give me the 411 on that. If we're trying to be constructive, if we're trying to find some value of things that have absolutely been murdered, and we just got done saying we think it's kind of early to start picking at things, but some of this stuff has been getting killed for months and months and months, and I think at some point it makes sense to start putting together a list of things where the probabilities of the worst-case scenario are very low, and then if anything goes right, you're going to have a real ricochet. It's not overly cheap, still trading at 22 times. Earnings growth rate has come down. They just lost their CFO. They've said it themselves in their 10K filings that the risks are that with COVID kind of going away, they may see a slowdown to their business. They had the eBay overhang in terms of separation of that business over a period of time too. So I think it's getting revalued and restruck. I think it's probably a pair of twos, as Carter would say. That being said, if what you're saying and the probabilities do occur, and this thing does go down another potential 30 to 40%, certainly it's a skill down there. Well, no, what I'm saying is the probability of it being cut in half from here is very, very low if you're looking one year out. And my point is, is if you're going to downplay the probability of what might be a worst case scenario being cut in half, and then if you want to lean into the fact that maybe 2022 estimates have come down enough with 1% EPS growth and expected 16% sales growth. The company is supposed to have close to $30 billion in sales this year. There's not too many companies in the S&P 500 that are doing that and growing at double digits. That's my point here. And if you think there is any reality to the 2023 earnings and sales estimates, I'm telling you then a stock like this is really cheap. You might endure that 30% probability that the stock is down 15 to 20% from here. That's what I'm saying. And I'm trying to find names like this where people were so geeked up about when they were skipping from 100 to 200 to 300, where the story hasn't changed much. If anything, the adoption of the product is there. It's just the decelerating growth and what people are willing to pay for it. I think people want to see where the dust settles. Shulman's basically saying that they're going to get through this stuff with eBay, that they're going to still be strong post-COVID. I just think now it's a show-me story, as we say. And just so you don't think we're all doom and gloom, I'm channeling my inner waltz from The Godfather, if you recall, just so you don't think I'm a bad guy. We've talked about Deere and Company, formerly known as John Deere, on this show a few times. And if you look at that stock, you talk about lower left to upper right, reports, I believe sometime mid-May, trading at 16 and a half times next year's numbers with about 22% EPS growth, seemingly making a new all-time high every single day. The point is, even though I think the market is headed lower, there are pockets out there that make a lot of sense. Personally, I still think energy goes higher. OIH, which believe it or not, we haven't talked about on the show in quite some time, is now either side of 300. I think that breaks out to the upside with Halliburton, which comes out, as you know, Dan, HAL reporting next week. How about my Walmart, boys? I was hiding in Walmart. It's been a strong stock, right? The beneficiary of the consumer stepping down, the beneficiary of a strong dollar. They have pricing power. People are buying food there and groceries there instead. And they just, speaking of PayPal, they just took the CFO away. So something going on there, Dan. Yeah, it's funny though, guy, that you mentioned a stock that's making 52-week highs. All-time. All-time highs. Go back to our interview with Gavin Baker of Atreides from a few weeks ago, and he's a tech investor. He's very focused on consumer-oriented businesses. And remember, guy, when he said that he's obsessed with the 52-week low list? I thought that was really interesting in a way. And that's one of the things that I think, for me, I like to buy things when everyone hates it, when it's just so out of favor. And that's why I'm going to continue to look at some of these stories where I think 
Again, I'm never one of those guys, rah-rah, when things are going gangbusters, but I like to try to find what could go right for something where everything has gone wrong for so long. And listen, dear Walmart, there's a lot of really great stories. Guy, you've been all over this energy chain. The guys, Vinny and Porter, they've been talking about it for the last few quarters. I was on with a really smart tech investor, a guy who's going to come on the pod pretty soon, and we'll announce it, where he hates tech. And he was saying, I want to be long steel. I want to be long fertilizer, all the energy, all the stuff that you guys have been talking about. That's pretty fascinating when you hear that from a storied technology investor. I live for the moment where we come on the show and we're like, guys, I got a list of 12 names here that need to be bought. To your point, Dan, the energy stocks, that was the sector a year ago, a year and a half ago. That was it. Those were stocks were sitting at 52-week lows. They got ESG'd away. Price of oil was down. Everyone said, screw them. We're not giving them financing. And look what happened. So you can't predict everything like that. But there is a price for everything. Absolutely. As Dan mentioned in the tease, we are going to be interviewing Danny Moses as part of our off the tape. <laughs> I can't wait to interview you guys, by the way. But I mentioned that because I love everything about Danny Moses. I love more than anything the exorcised Danny Moses. And I would say a month, month and a half ago, I think whilst we were taping on the tape, some news from Ryan Cohen and Bed Bath & Beyond came out. And I could see Danny jumping out of his skin and basically saying, oh, my God, I can't believe this. This whole thing is going to round trip. Well, guess what? That's exactly what happened in BBBY. Maybe he'll follow Musk again. Maybe he'll try to buy Bed Bath & Beyond now since he followed Musk into the stock split game and did that for GME. Maybe he'll do that with this thing. But, I mean, again, like I said before, you have these $15, $20 stocks that you can literally lose 80 to $100 in during the course of one quarter if you trade it incorrectly. And I just don't get it. I'm not saying Ryan Cohen's not a smart person, but the way that he attacks short sellers, the way he puts out information, yeah, that's cool. That's funny. That's destructive. So if people really follow these people like Elon Musk, which we can talk about in a second, and Ryan Cohen, great. He started Chewy. Awesome. That's great. He's obviously a smart, successful guy. But come on, this stuff frustrates me, guys, to no end, to watch this happen to people. I'm upset about it. I really get upset about it. And I think the point you've made is as long as things like that continue to happen, we have not seen a bottom for the market. And I understand that. And listen, we continue to see things like that. Oh, as a matter of fact, we're seeing it right now in the Twitter, Dan Nathan. Wait, wait, hold on a second. I guess I was just daydreaming for a second there. Well, Danny, was that your rot? No, that's not my rot. Oh, okay. All right, good. Because I was like, that was not rot worthy. That was not the exercised rot, Danny. No, that's just exercise, Danny. That's not rot, Danny. All right. Well, here's the one thing. I jumped on a Twitter space today, and it was a couple thousand people around there, and someone asked me to speak. I don't know why. Maybe it's that blue check sort of thing. It's so cool. And they were talking about this fiasco with Elon Musk, this bid that he made for Twitter. And it's just so funny. I think we talked about it last week. Is Other than people who listen to podcasts like ours, who spend a lot of time on Twitter, who are obsessed with Elon Musk, that sort of thing. No one gives a shit about this stuff. And I just find it really interesting that here's a guy that's running Tesla, which was a trillion dollar market cap company, SpaceX, which is a hundred billion dollar company that is basically charged with sending rockets to space and have them come back. He's got Neuralink, he's got Boring, and he tweets stupid memes all day. How the hell does he have time to take a company like this I just don't understand it. If I'm a Tesla shareholder or I'm a SpaceX shareholder, I'm kind of not particularly excited about this sort of action here because it seems like really, really self-absorbed. 
I think I'm sick of talking about it. You guys sick of talking about it? Me too. I was going to say, if you're still a Tesla holder, this doesn't bother you at all because why do you own Tesla? You don't own it for fundamentals. You own it because you believe in, in Musk. So anything this guy does should be gold. He's making a mockery out of all the capital markets. He makes a mockery out of the SEC. He makes a mockery out of Morgan Stanley. He actually calls up and says, let's make it $54.20. Not a multiple of earnings, not a multiple of revenue, nothing. We'll just come up with a number. The report earnings next week on 420. It's a total mockery. And for him to speak at this... TED Talks today and say, oh, maybe there's a plan B or I don't even know what the, I don't care about the economics of the business and they should get rid of it. It's a joke. That's a really good point. Not once in the last couple of weeks has he laid out why this is a good investment. At the time when he actually just announced the fact that he was taking a stake, now it's a little different. If he wants to pony up the 40 some billion dollars and just buy the company outright, well, that's his prerogative. He can do whatever the hell he wants. But my question that I have is if you are an Elon Musk disciple and you feel like he has created hundreds of billions of dollars of shareholder value with Tesla, which he has. And to quote our main man, Omar, from The Wire, money ain't got no owners, only spenders. So until you cash it out, who knows? But my question to you is if you were a shareholder of Tesla and you believe that he's got the Midas touch, wouldn't you much rather have him buy the company via Tesla and then really do what he does? That way you'd be able to participate other than him being distracted, having to take another huge loan from Goldman Sachs so he can get the equity to do it. I don't know. Literally one way or another, he's going to be levering his position in Tesla, which makes him vulnerable, in my opinion, as an individual, because the more he levers up his Tesla holdings, the more risk if the stock were to go the other way. Well, the last time he was vulnerable, he had a margin call at Solar City, and Tesla just bought Solar City to get rid of that margin call. But Dan, the truth is, if you look at the statement that he made, I think this is a cover your ass with the SEC bid so that he can now turn around and say, well, they turned me down. Now I'm selling my position if he's not selling it already. So again, he hasn't followed the rule of law as it relates to 13Ds versus 13Gs versus when to disclose something versus when to all this stuff. Take a poll. Should I sell the stock again? I'm sick of talking about him. I'm sick of him, and I'm sick of what he's doing. People bought Twitter this morning. The stock was as high as what, Dan, pre-market? What did the stock hit? It's down 10% from its highs. It was trading about $50. Right. I mean, this is the stuff that you guys follow these people in. Anyway, he's making a mockery. I'm sick of him. God bless all the Tesla shareholders that have nailed this thing. Congratulations. I'll just tell you, when it does start to go down by a lot, if that ever does happen, there is no bottom in this thing. Most fascinating about this is Elon Musk apparently is utilizing the skills of Morgan Stanley to advise him in this whole thing. And Twitter, the company, is utilizing the skills of Goldman Sachs. Now, Goldman Sachs is going to tell Twitter that the $54.20 price that Elon Musk bid for the company is too cheap. The problem then, of course, is Goldman Sachs has a sell rating on the shares, Danny, and a $30 price target on it. How do you reconcile that? Well, guy, you know that there's a wall there. The research analysts can't talk to bankers. You know how that works, guy. Come on. Somewhat problematic. That's a different rot. Different rot for a different time. But again, that's the market that we find ourselves in without question. And I think it just goes to show the absurdity that is the market. And you talk about the market calling bullshit on something. Twitter will trade by the end of the day about a quarter of a million shares, give or take, which is about eight times normal volume. And the stock, which obviously traded higher early on, has given the entire thing back and then some. So if I had an ego the size of somebody like Elon Musk and I saw that stock action, that's just going to embolden me to do something even more ridiculous next week. 
just my thoughts. All right, so speaking of action here, and we know we're in front of a three-day week, but S&P, like I said, is down a little more than 1%. The NASDAQ is down a little more than 2%, the NASDAQ 100. The VIX guy is unchanged at 2190. Now, granted, we know how the mechanism of the VIX works. It's not going to be up a whole heck of a lot before three-day weekend because it's got to work off the decay. But I'm seeing stuff accelerate to the downside here. I don't see the bank stocks get much better. I see mega cap tech get worse. I see see high valuation tech that's already been killed getting worse into the close. What are the big fears, Danny, in your opinion here? We have the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield. We talked about the steepening. We see a 210 spread at nearly 37 bips, but we see that 10-year at 2.827. We have not seen that in, I don't know, what, since 2019? So Dan, a couple things. Today is actually option expiration. I know you can trade S&P options literally daily at this point, but for stocks, it's option expiration there, right? So again, you buy a lot of puts that are expiring into the weekend. It may be people thinking, let me sell some of my longs that are no longer protected. That's one. Russia, obviously still making noise and now making more noise as it relates to Finland and Sweden, potentially joining NATO. They're saying that would be enough to start a nuclear war. The inflation numbers are only going to get hotter in the coming weeks or it stays hot as they've been. And then the Fed goes 50 basis points and the market still isn't that cheap. And we've had a rally overall in the last few weeks of what from the bottom five, seven percent somewhere where we are, Dan. And so I think we're just playing in this range here. Guy, do you think there's a chance that, and I know that you say this all the time, and you've been saying it actually for years, that the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield should be the most liquid thing. And it does trade liquidity. It's just been really volatile. So my question to you is, do we go from 283 to a multi-year high, and do we sprint right to 3%? And is a nice round number like 3%? Because you and I just did our little thing in Q4 of 2018. The last time the 10-year yield was above 3%, what happened to the S&P 500? Got obliterated, Dan Nathan. Obliterated. No, it sold off 19.9%. Yes, that's obliterated. So my question to you is, do alarm bells go off if we see a three-handle in the not-so-distant future as it relates to equity market? You know, it's interesting. And I know Danny is going to do his world-famous now feature called Rip Off the Tape in a minute on something along those lines. But to your point, Bond volatility, I've had to bug up my ass about bond volatility now for the last couple of years. And I bring it up all the time. I'm sure people are tired of hearing it, but I will tell you, bonds should not be as volatile as they are. Just this week, we saw yields in 10-year go from 280 down to 263, back to levels you're talking about now, all in the course of four trading days. There's something amiss. I would submit the bond market is broken. To answer your very specific question, if 10-year yields go higher from here, that's bearish for the stock market. If 10-year yields go back down to 2.5%, that's by definition bearish because the only way it's going to happen is if the market sells off meaningfully and people go to bonds as a flight to quality. So on either outcome, for the first time in a long time, they're both bearish. Typically, it's heads you win, tails I lose type of thing or whatever it is. The market goes up regardless. This is the flip side of that coin, Danny Moses. It is. And now I'm going to go into my rod if that's good because that was a perfect setup for this. I appreciate that. I started to look at a lot of volatility, treasury market. We've talked about fixed income ETFs of that nature. So my mom called me this week to tell me to look at her portfolio because it wasn't doing great. And I took a look and like all brokers do, they put her in various instruments so they can just manage the portfolio, charge her percentage and just what they think is diversifying. Her largest holding is this BlackRock strategic income opportunities portfolio. Rick Reader, I know, smart guy, all that. I look at the size of this thing. It's $45 billion. Treasuries is 33% of that guy. Agency mortgages, 8%, non-US credit, 6 I can go on and on. But down at the bottom, it says they use leverage. 
They have all these derivative trades going on, interest rate swaps to try to hedge out the portfolio. So then I started to look again. When did this ETF start? It started in 2008. When did Rick Reeder join? August 2010, watching this thing grow. The only time that he experienced a drawdown like he's doing now is when? The last time the Fed started to raise rates. So I ask you, a behemoth like this at $45 billion, charging, by the way, 75 basis points, 0.75% to manage this portfolio. What's going to happen with something like this? You want to know where the volatility is coming from? It's coming from you and I, Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs are making money on the fixed income trades, probably trading some of these products for BlackRock, I'm guessing, on swap. Just look at this thing. Go to the page if you want. Go to BlackRock.com and take a look at it. I'm not accusing anyone of doing anything bad. I'm just saying it is what it is. But you look at this portfolio. Oh, you say it's only down from $10.20 to $9.70. By the way, that's a lot for a fixed income portfolio. And now I think you have retail investors like my mother that are starting to look at their portfolios, asking questions, what is this? Half the brokers can't even answer what it is. Let me just read this to you at the end of the bottom of the disclosure, which you got to go way, way down to see. Negative weightings, which they have because they have negative derivative exposure, may result from specific circumstances, including time and differences between trade and settle dates of securities purchased by the funds and or the use of certain financial instruments, including derivatives, which may be used to gain or reduce market exposure and or risk management. Certain transactions the funds may utilize may give rise to a form of leverage through either A, additional market exposure, or B, borrowing capital in an attempt to increase investment return. The use of such transactions includes certain leverage-related risks, including potential for higher volatility, greater decline of the fund's net asset value, and fluctuations of dividends and distributions paid by the fund. So here you are sitting. There's many of these types. This is one of the bigger ones, obviously, that's out there. My point is that you want to see what the driver is, guy of treasury volatility. It's things like this. And I believe these are the things you need to start watching. You can watch your HYG and your JNK, but to me, what's moving treasuries is something like this. So people need to open their eyes. And just to tie a ribbon on this, before we have this in-depth interview with Danny Moses, I'll point out the following. BlackRock, the stock, comes out BLK, was a $973.16 stock at its zenith right around, I would say, I don't know, mid-November of last year. Oddly enough, what happened around mid-November of last year? That's when the Fed started to change course. It has since sold off some 29%, just putting it out there. So just to tie a bow on this guy, my point was that Rick Reeder started managing this fund in 2010 when the Fed was printing. We went through QE1, QE2, QE3, and now for the first time in a long time, he's going to be facing the Fed not having its back. I'm going to wonder what this is going to look like over the coming months. Well, tying a bow on my bow on your bow, when we come back, we're going to have the interview potentially of the year when Dan Nathan and I chat with Danny Moses of The Big Chill. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. 
Every once in a while, you have these transformative moments where you meet somebody that changes the trajectory of your life. That's happened to me a number of times. I also met Danny Moses. That didn't happen when I met him. I'm kidding. (laughs) We met Danny Dan Wynn, and I think it was sometime in 2018. He came onto the set of CNBC's Fast Money. I would like to submit we've been fast friends ever since. 2019. Okay. You got to correct me in public. Well, he came on the program, and it must have been the most boring day in the market, guy. We've watched it paint dry in the market. So Danny comes on. And he's talking about a trade idea. It's not really a trade idea, an investment idea. He's calling it the big long guy. Do you know what that was named after? The big long. And he was talking about cannabis. And he actually gave a really coherent argument of why people should be looking at cannabis for a whole host of reasons. But why was he calling it the big long guy? Because he starred in a movie called The Big Short that I actually saw recently. I actually went to my local blockbuster and took it out. And I sat and I put it in my VCR machine. And I... I would say 30 seconds in, I was dead asleep. Could not have been more boring. Oh, stop it. Danny Moses, welcome to Off the Tape. It's great to be here, guys. Thanks for having me. First time, long time, guy. So we thought it would be fun to sort of flip the script, as they say, and interview you. Because, quite frankly, you have a fascinating backstory, and we don't have the opportunity to do this. So we thought on this holiday-shortened week, what better time to sort of drill down to the life of Danny Moses. So... Without further ado, Dan, I'm going to give it over to you because I got some questions that I want to ask. To be very honest, when Guy and I met Danny, we're really intrigued. We knew him through the movie, through the book, The Big Short, which was uh, Michael Lewis' book, which was, I think, one of the most definitive books about the financial crisis. And I didn't really know a whole heck of a lot about Danny as the person, but I remember Steve Eisman's team and his friends, Porter and Vinny, who have been guests with us on, on the tape on many occasions. So Danny, talk to us a little bit about how you met those guys. You and I came up in the business around the same time, late 90s. We were kids of that dot-com bubble, the inflation and the burst. And I think you and I have talked on many occasions. We have a lot of scar tissue from both watching things inflate and then the deflation, which was just a massive protracted bear market. And it really made it hard to think about markets differently because when you're born of that period, it's going to take some time to work off that. Yeah. So leading up to meeting Stephen Vincent and Meredith Whitney, actually, in 1996, when I went to Oppenheimer as an institutional equity salesperson, and then for the ensuing years, actually covered, formerly known as SAC, 0.72, and Dan, I know our paths crossed at some point probably there. Prior to that, I think I want to back up a little bit. So in 1991, coming out of college, I was a muni bond analyst at MBIA, of all places. What ended up becoming the center of the financial crisis was some of these insurance companies that were insuring some of these financial products like CDOs. But When I was at MBIA, it was just airport revenue bonds and dormitory bonds and straightforward. But in the middle of all this in 1994 was the Orange County crisis, if you guys remember. Orange County, the guy that was running their investment portfolio, this guy Citron, decided in cahoots with Merrill Lynch to take huge risks on these interest rate swaps. And here I am sitting at MBIA thinking muni bonds never default to being called into a conference room by the CEO of MBIA watching the stock drop, like my first iteration in the corporate world seeing what can happen and seeing the underbelly of Wall Street. Fast forward, I go back to get my MBA because obviously I had to run out of MBIA, did a one-year program at Emory, came back, and then I ended up at Oppenheimer. So right then in 1997 and 1998 was the first subprime crisis that we saw. That was the auto finance companies. That was Ugly Duckling and all these other, including actually Ernie Garcia II, which ran that company, which is now Carvana, 
We've talked about that on the podcast before. Ames Financial, all this stuff. And who was the analyst on that? It was Steve Eisman. And so as an institutional equity salesperson covering hedge funds and pension funds and state retirement funds, I have to get on the phone with Steve and Vincent and Meredith to walk through the thesis of why the stock that they own is going to zero. So you get hung up on a lot for that. So I learned quickly what can go wrong with companies. And that was the training. And I mean, Steve's brilliant. Vinny's brilliant. Meredith's brilliant. Learning there. So fast forward through that, the end of 2000, 9-11, which was a tragic day for everybody. Oppenheimer was in One World Financial Center, which was, as you guys know, the top floor, which was the eighth floor adjacent to the North Tower. And so we were there that day. That had an impact, obviously, on everybody. Tragic. We all knew people, et cetera, and really changed the course for how I thought about things and needed a change in my life. And it was soon after that that Vincent and Porter and Steve started at Front Point Partners to create their financial book in 2004. I was still messing around on the sell side, but covering very smart institutional accounts, the Vikings of the world, right? The Tigers of the world, smart people. And in doing that, I kept started to learn more and more about what it takes to be on the buy side. Anyway, to make a long story short, Steve Vincent and Porter in 2005, six, were looking for a trader to come in and trade their book. Well, I knew about their entire book. I knew their personalities. I knew their style. So I said, let me be your trader. He said, well, you've never been a quote buy side trader before. And I said, I think I can learn that side. So went in there and did that. And then the rest is history as far as what we saw after that. But this goes way back, the training of seeing this happen once in 1997 and 1998 with this team, ex-Porter. And Porter worked at Chilton with Steve Eisman. So when Steve left up and I went to Chilton. So roundabout way of how we all got together. And I think it was a great timing for an unfortunate event, the big short, but that's how it all came together. It was great timing, but I want to ask you a question. There's so many people, the buy the dip crowd, the lazy, the market never goes lower stuff. I know it's extraordinarily frustrating for me. I'm certain it's even more frustrating for you, but to be the person like a Jim Chanos, like a Danny Moses, like Porter and Vinny, like Steve, to break down things, to look at things, to understand them at their root, and then try to come up with scenarios where these things fail. That's extraordinarily difficult, time-consuming, painstaking, but most importantly, frustrating work. How do you wrap your head around that? It is frustrating. You have to have longevity in a short position because, listen, you can be wrong on a short position, but to really have conviction, that means you've done the work, means you understand the balance sheet of a company. It means you have a pretty idea of the trends, the corporate culture at a company, when they're lying to you, when they're not. So you know you're probably going to be right. Now, you say that, and a company can be acquired, which has happened many times. You can be short a company that gets bought. There's always risk, to your point, Guy, because shorts can go to infinity, and longs can only go to zero. So you can short a stock down to zero. That's the most you can make. And I think it's about managing your book, managing your positions, and your sizing based upon where stock goes. We talked last week with Porter and Vinny, and I think this is really key. You short a stock at $40 and your target is 10, you think it's not as zero. stock goes to 20, you better not keep reshorting the company because your conviction from 20 to 10 is very different. So it's really a case-by-case basis, but Guy, I'll take it a little bit further. It's really trying to understand the mentality of the people that own it. And what we used to do is, what I love to do even still to this day is, if I think a company is a short, I want to speak to a large holder of the stock. I want to speak to the research analysts that have buy ratings on it, even though they're probably full of shit. I want to know what the thesis is so I know what to look for and what to be aware of and how I'm going to get run over the short side. I know this was Steve and Vinny and Porter, and especially Steve. We're truth seekers. And if we can help people along the way, great. We're not out there to bash and get people on our side and scare longs that are out of names. It's just the facts. And from a behavioral finance perspective, to me, the hardest thing to watch or to deal with 
is the mentality of some of these investors that want to believe in a story that we believe or I believe is a total facade. So there's so much that goes into sizing and timing of these things. And it takes a lot of guts for sure. Danny, tell us a little bit about the origins of Michael Lewis writing this book, because when you think about the book, you think about the movie, it spends a lot of time as the main characters are dealing with being wrong on the price action of the thing that they are very convicted on, the thing that they're trying to prove that truth. And it takes years almost. Just take us back to the origins of that. And I'm fairly certain that Michael Lewis's book is true to the word of all the people that he obviously interviewed and helped inform the story, the Adam McKay movie, which is brilliant, by the way. And I hear that there is a clip of you breaking the third wall on the cutting room floor of that. Maybe you can find a guy. You won't find it on the Betamax version, but I think it's out there somewhere in the ether of the internet or so. But talk to us about that because the movie definitely spends most of the time of the people being wrong who are most convicted. If you go to Christian Bale's character, Michael Burry, that was the focal point of who can be early and potentially wrong, who had the guts to stay with it, who told their investors to screw themselves. I'm going to lock down my portfolio you are in and prove to be right over time. We were luckier in the sense of when we put the short positions on, shorting mortgage-backed securities effectively through the CDS market, we did it literally in June and July of 2006. And let me back up a little bit. So if you remember in the movie, I pick up the phone and it's an accidental phone call. That actually happened. Greg Lippman, Deutsche Bank, called and he was looking for a hedge fund named Ivory Capital, which was actually part of the front point umbrella. And his idea was they showed up as long holders, equity holders of New Century, Credit Home Lenders, Saxon, all the companies that were producing these mortgages. And he thought, and he was right, Greg, these guys might want to hedge. So when we got on the phone with him, I go, hold on, Greg, we're not long those. We would never be long those. We're actually short those. Who are you? What is this? And when he presented this to us, we're like, this is probably too good to be true. And that's the way that Michael Lewis wrote it. So when we put on the position, it worked from day one. We were an equity fund. We were not a fixed income fund. So we had to get approval from a risk management perspective from people at Front Point that would let us even put this trade on. And so we dipped our toe in pinky toe, all our toes in, and then our arms in. And then we realized as this was working, it helped us actually think about how to manage our equity book, both on the long and short side. So we were feeding off in fixed income in real time. So as this is going on in 2006, 2007, 2008, fast forward a year later, we get a call from Meredith Whitney and Michael Lewis is running around looking for people that were involved in shorting the housing market. And because Meredith was front and center and really in the public domain, Michael reached out to her and Meredith immediately said, call Steve Eisman and his team. They're one of the people. Now, there were many teams that were putting on this trade at the time. But I think what Michael Lewis, who came into the office initially to have a conversation with us, felt he wanted characters. And Steve Eisman is a character. The simple way that we were looking at it, in Michael's eyes, I think, was the way he wanted to present it, the way that he wrote the book about home prices are going down. What does that mean for these bonds? They're going to default. How is Wall Street still pushing these bonds if they're going to default and picking up on those trends? So from the time that Michael came in to start speaking with us to the article that he wrote in Vanity Fair and then to the book, which came out in March 2010, there was a lot of iterations of conversations, a lot of interviews that he had with us along the way just to go back and see how we did this and what we did. So there was a lot that went into it. But like I said, he just happened to pick us and then he wrote about it, if that answers your question. People that make incredible calls, what was her name? Elaine Garzarelli, I'm sure I'm impaling myself, but she made this famous call back in the 80s. And what I've noticed, and I'm not suggesting this is you, Danny, although I'm sure there's some truth to this, there's always that pressure 
to make the next call. A lot of people say, ah, it was just a fluke, blah, blah, blah. And you always feel like, shit, I am under this pressure to find the next call. Not necessarily on the long side, but these short side calls that have become legendary. Do you feel that or am I off base on this? I think when you see something and you know it's probably a short, you get very, I should say, excited about the opportunity. Not because people that own it are going to lose money, because you think you've discovered something that nobody else has maybe. It's almost like being some type of detective. And when I tell you in the financial services industry, which is really where we had spent most of our time, within the 10 Qs and within the 10 Ks and stuff, there's information in there. And if people just want to piecemeal a conference call and listen to a CEO and what he's telling you, that's fine. But what they say and what they do are two different things. And so we used to try to find that situation where we could uncover something. And then we would basically run the gamut on, is it really out there? Is anyone talking about this stuff? Can we get confirmation of it? Then we would go one step at a time. So let me back up a little bit to 1998, 99. Forget about subprime for a second. So the first iteration that Dan opened up with, the dot-com bubble that was going on, from a behavioral finance perspective, to me, that is the biggest ingredient in trying to understand the timing of a short, when to pounce on it, when it's too big, when it's too small, and so forth. And watching that in that sector. So let's keep in mind, so here on one side at Oppenheimer, we had Steve Eisman covering the specialty finance sector and Henry Blodgett covering the dot-com companies, basically. 100 multiple of revenues for Amazon, et cetera. So you got to see two ends of the spectrum. One is the current day meme stock stuff that we're seeing right now, which you can't value it on any tangible asset. So you just come up with a number and some multiple. The other is a finance company, which has to have these assets on balance sheet, which is very capital intensive. So you can't bullshit your way through that. So that training of seeing the behavioral finance aspect of what people want to believe in, watching some of my clients, which were hedge funds at the time, chase these tech stocks and watching them implode in real time, all that information I just soak in from a behavioral finance perspective. What were they looking at? When did it end? How can you tell when stocks stop going up on nonsense guide up on multiple of revenues? When you see that stuff start to happen, you know we're close to an end. So that was the training ground for, I thought, what happened later in my career and still to this day of understanding that because I think Behavioral finance is the biggest element. And I go back, I'm a big fan of reminiscences of a stock operator. Jesse Livermore was a behavioral finance 101, the way that he went about his business. Guy remembers. Guy remembers. When genius fails, the rise and fall of long-term capital. Lowenstein, reading that book, you get an idea of the personalities and the egos, and they want to self-fulfill something as far as what valuation might be. All that stuff that I banked over the years goes into finding something. And so I see a lot of opportunities right now And I was thinking about it last night about this never confuse brains with a bull market. And we have had a 13-year bull market driven by the Fed. And we are now entering a whole different phase. So this is going to be the best opportunity again for shorts to start working. And you will get knee-jerk reactions. Hold on. Shorts to start working here. They've been working. If you were going by your big short playbook, you would have been laying into these shorts for quarters now for a better part of a year because the writing was on the wall for a lot of this sort of stuff. And so I'm with you on that. But Danny, I got to ask you this. It's pretty fascinating. When you look at the date that the big short was published, it was March 2010. It was basically a year to the day that the stock market bottomed the S&P at 666. So you got to tell us, how did you and Vinny and Porter and Steve, the book is literally hitting Barnes and Nobles. It's being delivered by Amazon. People are still shorting the market then because they thought that was just a bear market rally. You guys are now infamous 
how do you pick up your career after having one of the biggest trades that anyone will ever have in this business? And how do you move forward from that? Like what happened to you guys? What happened to the team? And here we are, obviously, 12 years later. Just give us a sense of how you move forward and what that book meant for your career because it came out kind of real time. Yeah. So keep in mind, in 2010, it was March of 2010 that it came out. The shit was hitting the fan in Europe. We were dealing with stuff here in the U.S. We'd come up with PPIP, TALP, TARP, pick an acronym. We were dealing with it. Over there, they were just beginning short bans and dealing with all the European banks that were holding the bag on a lot of stuff. So that stuff was still going on. And we were trading globally. We were shifting our book, if you want to call it, Dan, from really nothing left to short, really, in the U.S. banks at that point over to Europe and looking at that. It was really hard to be intellectually honest and objective when you knew this stuff was still going on globally to go long, to buy certain things. So admittedly, we were probably late to cover our shorts during the 2009 period into when the big short book obviously was coming out, but we managed to survive that and be a little bit more objective. So as far as being able to see the world clearly, we could understand what longs we needed to buy because we knew with these programs that were coming in from the government who the winners would be, hopefully, who the losers would be, and what the fallout was going to be. So it helped us, obviously, seeing the end of the world, come back to see what we think were going to be the surviving companies. But there was a lot of leftover debris still going on in the U.S., picking up the pieces. And what it meant from a career perspective at that point and where we went after that was, if you remember, not too long after that, there was an insider trading issue at Front Point on the healthcare team. Now, Front Point was set up multi-strategy. So we were siloed in financials. There was a tech team, a healthcare team. And so when that happened, not too long after that, we had to make a decision from a franchise perspective of what we wanted to do. I had some issues going on in my personal life. My father had just passed away. And I was obviously had gone through this with the big short up down and the emotional toll that it took. Yes, it was fiscally rewarding, but you can't put a price on what it does to you. So I wanted to step away. Vinnie Porter and Steve gave it a go for a little bit longer. And then soon after that, Steve went on to start a new macro fund. And Vinnie Porter and myself got back together late 2011, early 2012 and formed Seawolf Capital, which decided to trade long, short financial services stocks in the midst of the Fed controlling the entire yield curve. So after four to five years of doing that together, we did fine, nothing great. We realized that it was not fruitful to fight the Fed anymore. Fast forward where we are today, it's a different story. So Seawolf Capital with Vinnie and Porter, early 2017, parted ways at that time, realizing there wasn't a lot of money to be made trading long, short financial services when the Fed was controlling the yield curve at the time. It was really hard and we were stock pickers and not until recently has it, quote, been a stock pickers market. So left that and soon after that had the pleasure of meeting you guys. And since then, I've been doing independent consulting and advising for various companies. I'm truly enjoying it. You also enjoy the horses, which we know. And I mention that because in markets, It's fun to be right, and it's fun to bet chalk and make money, but the real rewards come when you find that 32 to 1 horse that you do work on for three or four days leading up to the race, and that horse wins. That, to me, that's the juice. That's what you live for. How similar is handicapping horses to what you're doing now? I mean, what you've been doing in the markets, because a few weeks ago, it's actually longer than that, you said you as bearish as you've been in quite some time. And then a few weeks later, you subsequently said, I've gone from being bearish to being outright scared. So there's some 65 to one horse out there waiting to be picked in the form of the market. Can you speak to that? Yeah. Listen, I've always said when you go to the track, the worst thing you can do before you look at the program or try to handicap with the charts is to look at the odds on the board. 
And if you look at the one horse and he's two to one and the seven horse is 60 to one, your mind will move you away from even looking at any of the information as it relates to the seven horse. And to me, it's always about doing the work first and then looking at the odds second. So doing bottom up work on stocks and deciding, oh, I think that stock should be at $30 and it's at 10 or conversely, it's at 70. You have an edge, you have a fat pitch on the long or the short side. And that's kind of how I approach that. What I'm seeing right now in retail and meme world community is that everybody's on the same side of a trade. And it doesn't mean that the stock's going to go down anytime soon. It's that their belief they're on the one horse because everybody's on the one horse and the horse is winking at me as it goes down the track from the let it ride scene, you know, with Richard Dreyfuss, one of the greatest movies of all time, by the way, if you're a gambler on horses and you kind of mix that all in. And so right now, yes, I always look for those horses on the long and the short side and you want to find the mispriced stallion. It's obviously out there. And if you find it, you go with it. Now, I covered a client named Jack Wolf at Columbus Partners in the late 90s, 96, 97, 98. He's from Louisville, Kentucky. He started Starlight Racing. He's won a few Kentucky Derbies. I bought into that partnership. I would advise anybody to not buy horses. However, because of the years that I was buying in, you buy them as yearlings and then you own them like you buy 2002 and those horses race in the Derby in 05. You buy them in 2004, they race through years in 07. I kind of picked the wrong years. Jack's had extraordinary success. But to your point, Guy, being a hedonist and finding the stuff and living life, I like to try everything. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hedonist? What's going on here? You try to slip that by the goalie here? What does that mean? Wasn't there a place called hedonism back in the 80s and 90s? You probably had like curlier and longer hair at the time. I guarantee you had your shirt open down to your navel and had like chains and stuff. This hair won't grow long. It'll only grow up. Yeah, but it's got to be all over your chest and back, to be very frank. Nah, I'm, I'm good. Thanks, Dan. Danny, one of the things that we really enjoyed, we started spending a lot of time together, Guy, you and myself, at least virtually and just talking markets. And I know that you have a great network. You've brought a lot of your network into the On The Tape family. We've had lots of great conversations with people on here. You were really early to some themes last year. You really zeroed in on this meme stuff and why that was reminiscent of a time past and it didn't end well the prior time. But you were able to really, I think, in a very cogent manner, make some connections to why things are coming unwired a little bit. And you had some thoughts on some of these shit coins as it related to crypto and the SPAC stuff. And so that was all great. I think we were all on the same page in that. These are themes that we hit hard throughout last year. But there was a point in the summer when you introduced a concept that was not on the tip of many analysts, traders, pundits, what have you in the markets. You started talking about the prospect of a stagflationary environment. And you said at the time, this is not something that probably 90% of market participants have any experience on. Why did that concept get your radar? Why did you keep beating that drum a little bit? Because it didn't take long as we got into the fall and the Fed started to pivot, that it started to be something that was talked about, I think, daily. And why was it something that hit your radar? I felt that inflation wasn't transitory at the time. I felt they would obviously have an impact on interest rates. I felt that the short end of the curve at a minimum would start to move higher. And I don't think we've been in a situation we've had to deal with any of that for the last 13 years. And so having traded through the cycle in 2004 and five, what was ended up obviously crushing the housing market was rates. It's always interest rates. And the amount of leverage that's in the system right now, it's not sitting on the bank's balance sheets this time like it was during the financial crisis, so it's different, but it's on corporate balance sheets, it's on consumer balance sheets, and we've been living basically rent-free for a long time in terms of rates, 1%, 2%. Those don't make sense. So we had this time period where stock market versus rates made no sense. The economy was humming. So there's a mismatch there, and I felt 
over time, the economy could stay strong for a period of time, but the Fed raising rates would slow down the economy. And then if inflation ran hotter than people expected, it would create a situation where the Fed would be forced to raise rates into a slowing economy, which is the definition of stagflation. And I've seen what can happen when credit either goes bad or is priced higher than people thought when there's leverage. And so it really came down to possibly all these financial products backing up again. And so I think that seeing what we saw in 2004, 5, 6, 7, 8, how it evolved, it's always a little bit different, but it certainly rhymes this time. And so that's what I thought I would be seeing. Again, I've been thinking about this over the last week. Where should the 10-year yield be right now? It should probably be at 6, 7, 8% right now. And it's not. The economy would come to a screeching halt. We would go into a massive recession if that's where rates were. So I just started to think about the reality of matching the economy with where rates should be. And that's kind of what led me there, Dan. But there's a lot that goes into it, but it's just everybody's on one side of a trade thinking the Fed has your back and now they don't. And that's really as simple as it comes down to that. They clearly don't. And so people will say, all right, Danny, I hear everything you're saying. I don't have the time. I don't have the fortitude, basically the patience to do what you do. So what are some of the things we should be watching to give us a clue that things might just start unravel? I'll tell you from my vantage point, I think you agree with me, Everything revolves around credit. So I specifically have been looking at the HYG, the LQD. Both seem to be rolling over, although it's had no impact basically on the broader market. What are your thoughts in terms of a couple of things people should be watching as an indication that things are about to go, I don't want to say pear-shaped, but get a little unruly? Yeah, we're already seeing fixed income investors demand higher yield for the risk they're going to be taking. Let's be honest, guys. It's been riskless to be in fixed income for some time, whether it's an auto loan, mortgages, or whatever. And so they're going to require a higher rate of return for the risk that they're taking because everything's based on where treasury yields are, right? Risk is measured off of treasuries. Where do auto loans trade versus treasuries? Where do mortgages trade versus treasuries? As that spread widens, which we're seeing right now, it creates a lot of strain in the system. It means that top-line originations and top-line revenue for the originators and all categories will slow. And they're not built for that. These things all popped up during the time period where the Fed was pumping endless liquidity into the market. So none of these models have been tested for what's about to happen, in my opinion. But we've seen iterations of it already. We saw what can happen when there's a lot of leverage in the system and rates move higher. So what am I looking at? Repriced ABS deals, failed ABS deals in the market, whether it's in auto, whether it's in mortgages, whatever it might be. So watching that, and that's occurring right now. Watching yields move higher globally right now, watching New Zealand raise rates like they did last night, watching these things, cost of capital is going higher. And we haven't had to deal with that. So it's not just one thing. It's a lot of things. And we've already seen the first shots across the bow, so to speak, in the financial services sector, in the likes of a firm and the buy now, pay later, in the upstarts of the world. We're already seeing numbers come down on some mortgage originators, right? And it's been straight up for the last several years. And so we're going to go through a cycle here. And I don't believe that the market is prepared for it at all. That was a whole heck of a lot of wonk there. We appreciate that. You know, one of the reasons why Guy and I really wanted to do this, Danny, is that we've had the pleasure, again, of speaking to you now, it seems like a year and a quarter on a weekly basis. And we talk a lot in the preparation of our podcast. We hear two things. We hear that you guys are just not afraid to tell it the way it is. We're not down to any big fund or organization. We're not your broker. We're not your hedge fund manager, this and that, whatever. And we're really just trying to espouse a little bit of our experience over the last, for you and me, Danny, maybe 25 years, for Guy, 45 years or so. But we also have a lot of fun together. 
together and people tell us all the time you guys are kind of entertaining and we appreciate that we don't try to be goofballs but we try to kind of give a little sense of what makes us tick one of the things that makes you tick and you and i bonded almost immediately i think it was pearl jam i think that you and i now have been to a bunch of concerts over the last let's call it year and a half but where did your love of music come and i think that guy and i have this ongoing conversation what guy what's the last new band that you liked was it rem dire straits somewhere between dire straits and rem and that's almost the truth maybe you want to throw a black crows in there but you get my drift well that would be a little hard to handle but for us right now i mean danny and me being much younger than you guy we appreciate all the stuff that you came up with that you used to see live on the black and white tv when rock and roll was at its infancy but danny you and i just got going in around 1990 pearl jam and nirvana and all that stuff so danny we travel for pearl jam so talk to me yeah music to me is an escape it's a great emotional release live concerts live music there's nothing like it being with people all enjoying the same stuff and i saw a concert on my 21st birthday in berlin germany which was the wall at the wall and you talk about being at something that's a life-changing experience being with hundreds of thousands of people watching this about the whole freedom of now the irony right now is Russia's trying to rebuild obviously what they lost then but being at something like that that's an experience I want to remember those experiences and the music from obviously the wall is timeless right as far as I'm concerned yeah but let me ask you was that David Gilmore and Roger Waters no it was only Gilmore no it was only Waters but he brought in Sinead O'Connor Thomas Dolby the band so he had a variety of people coming in and singing but point was that you're with a group of people experiencing something that's very emotional at that time, watching them. So they rebuilt the wall during the show, and then they collapsed the wall after. Anyway, but Pearl Jam, Dan, obviously the time period, that album 10, certainly one of the greatest albums ever written. You and I were talking the other day about top albums of all time, which guy I'll pass on Joshua Tree, but I totally disagree with him. But things in your life that are happening in college, whether it's a breakup, whatever it might be, going on to your first job, just experiencing that journey. And to me, music's a journey. And when I talked about joking about being hedonist, Part of it is going out and seeking the things that make you feel good and that you want to do and experiencing things and not being afraid to do that. And to me, music is the ultimate. Traveling for music and concerts and being with people is the ultimate release. And so I love live music of any kind, but I certainly, you're right, Dan. If I had to pick a band, it's Pearl Jam. It's certainly my favorite. And I don't know, Eddie Vedder just talks to me, man. Well, you know what they say, Guy, and this is certainly the case with you and me, behind every decent guy is a great woman. And I think that is clearly the case with Danny Moses, Allison, his wife, who I've gotten to know very well over the last year. We've been to a bunch of concerts. We went to one last week. We saw the Airborne Toxic event at the Beacon, and you have two what it sounds like fabulous boys, because as we were having Marg, that's short for Margarita's guy, before we went over to the Beacon, we heard about the exploits of your two college A's boys, Charlie and Jack. Talk to us about your family, Danny. Yeah, so I'm going to see them this week because my grandmother passed away last year. And so in our religion, you do an unveiling. A year later, you go to the graveside and you have the stone. And so we're all going to gather. The entire family is going to be there. And my grandmother and my grandfather on that side in Greenville, South Carolina, were Holocaust survivors that came over in 1939, 1940 from Austria and my grandfather became mayor of Greenville, South Carolina as a Jewish immigrant, not speaking a lick of English without a dollar in his pocket, truly the American dream. And so any chance we have to get together, and that's where the spirit comes from our entire family in terms of looking what your roots were and it makes you obviously tough and it makes you appreciate everything in life. So long-winded answer to being together with family. So any excuse to get together that we do. And my father, as you guys know, was a finance professor. And so my passion for the markets came at an early age as well. So 
all that together, I think, has has shaped me to who I am today. But being a part of a family that's gone through something like that really creates a different vantage point for everything that you do in life. No question. That's an amazing story. God bless both your grandmother and your grandfather. And I actually, we got to go out to dinner with your wife, Allison. I will say this. She is an edgy broad. <laughs> and I say that in the most enthusiastic way possible, Danny. Well, she feels the same about you guys. So just stay a little far away from her next time, if you don't mind. Duly noted. And quick, Danny, I know sports are a passion of yours as well. So just walk me through where your head is at in terms of your sports teams. Pretty well documented my hatred for certain teams. I guarantee Vinny and Porter will be listening to this. and They know exactly of what I speak. But talk to me about your sports enthusiasm. Well, born in Athens, Georgia. So obviously the 1980 Georgia Bulldogs, I was 11 years old at the time. So obviously that was a passion. That was something my dad and I shared together, going to games, listening to games on the radio. The Atlanta Braves back then also, because you could watch it on TBS wherever you lived, I'd go to games, listen on the radio. That was a huge passion of mine. The Atlanta Falcons growing up was a passion, and the Hawks were a passion. So I was a big Atlanta-centric fan of everything. Over the years, between the baseball strikes and so forth, I lost a little bit of interest. I was there in 95 when the Braves won the World Series, so got to clip that. Georgia just finally won another one. That's probably my biggest passion I have in sports is for college football in Georgia. And again, because I shared that with my dad and my family. Beyond that, meaning having been out of Atlanta now for several years, I'm more of a sports fan. I like certain sports figures. I like to take on some of these teams that have great personalities, underdogs that you want to root for. So I kind of leave it open. And fantasy football, doing that for years, kind of ruined any allegiance that you have to a professional football team. But going to games with friends and stuff, I still love live sports. So for me, guy, I'm Georgia Bulldogs still at the top, and everything else is kind of second. That's pretty cool. And then if we look at your Twitter handle, at DMoses34, we got to give a shout out to your all-time idol there. That would be Herschel Walker running a hell of a campaign in your home state. Really, Dan? We're going there? I need to change my Twitter. I'm just going to separate the politics and the mental stuff that he's been through. We all know he's not mentally well. You can see what's going on. And so he was a true hero back when you're 10 year old watching this guy plow through Bill Bates at Tennessee and then winning the national championship with one shoulder. I separate him as an athlete from everything else. You know what's really interesting about him? In 1988, I went to a Bears-Cowboys game at Soldier Field, and Herschel Walker was on the cover of the program, and he used to do ballet dance in preparation. Yeah, no, he's, he's a tremendous athlete. He seemed to be pretty open about who he was and what he was and everything like that. He just seems to have gone off the reservation of late. So let's figure out what a nice handle guy might be for Danny Moses on the Twitter. Well, I'll think about that. And in closing, I just want to say, because I know these guys are listening, Danny, I want to give a shout out to Ralph, the Roadrunner Gar. I'm sure one of your favorite players growing up. Steve Bartkowski, who I'm sure you rooted for on Sundays. Oh, love Bartkowski. I did. And then, of course, the great Dominique Wilkins of Atlanta Hawk fame, all listening, all big fans of not only on the tape, but of Danny Moses. So thank you for joining us on the tape. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.